Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Even though Women's History Month may have ended, it's always a good time to learn about the unsung women who helped shape Bay Area history. From a formerly enslaved cook who became a celebrity chef to a pistol-packing gold rush gambler who beat men at their own game, KQED's Ray Alexandra joins us to highlight some of the amazing women she's featured in her Rebel Girl series. Plus, KQED's Pendarvis Harshot joins us to talk about and play some new music. From Bay Area artists as part of KQED Arts and Culture's Past the Ox music series. To kick us off, this is Rihanna Jade's song, Last Call. It's Friday, and that's all next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are talking Bay Area history this morning, specifically the profilees of Ray Alexandra's hit KQED series, Rebel Girls. Her stories detail the lives of extraordinary women of the Bay. She's also a staff writer for KQED Arts. Thanks so much for joining us, Ray. Thanks for having me. So what's the kind of filter you put in place to find the women that you want to include in this series? Um, well, uh, I think... Uh, the series started back in Women's History Month 2018, and it was just supposed to be a five-part series. Um, it's been going for so long now that it's kind of changed how I interact with the world generally. Like, my brain has just switched. Um, I'm just always looking for women who nobody's heard of, who everyone should have heard of. And how do you go and find the... the the research, you know, and figure out who these people really were and figure out how you want to tell their stories. So once I have uh, the name of a woman and it comes to me in so many different ways, I'm not going to bore you. Um, I will do a quick uh, Google search, just see has this person done much? And usually if I can only find like three or four sentences, I'm like, right, I'm going to find it. Mm. Um, so the first port of call is usually the SF History Center in uh, the library downtown San Francisco. Uh, the people who work there are my heroes. Mm. Um, I go in, ask them very obscure questions. They're very patient. They know everything. And they're usually my first port of call because even if they don't have it, they can tell me who does have the information. So they're first. And then second would be California Historical Society, also downtown San Francisco. Um, the librarian there, Frances Kaplan, is a goddess of information. Hmm. You, know, you said it feels different to interact with the world now that you see all these women's stories embedded around the Bay. Why don't you tell us about one of those of those women? Let's maybe start with Abby Fisher. 
Okay, Abby Fisher is truly remarkable in so many different ways. It's hard to know where to begin. So Abby Fisher was born enslaved on a South Carolina plantation, um, and she grew up working in the kitchen. She spent her whole life working in that kitchen. And when she finally was able to get free, her and her husband and their many children uh, made their way to California. And when they got here via wagon train, by the way, stopping only in Missouri so she could give birth, and then they just carried on coming, um, which speaks to Abby's rebellion, resilience and strength. Tough. But it's yeah. So tough, my God. Ridiculous. So they get to San Francisco. They set up a pickles and preserves company and super popular because Abby knows everything there is to know about Southern cooking. And so she's introducing people in California to this food that they've never had before. And so she quickly starts winning awards. Um, she's being approached by people all over the Bay Area, why don't you write a cookbook? We all need these recipes. We've never had anything like this. And she's there saying, well, I never had an education. I grew up on a plantation. Like, what do you, what do you want me to do? Um, and the Women's Cooperative Printing Press, which was also in downtown San Francisco, approached her and said, look, if you can figure this out, we will publish it. And so the way that she managed to do this is she got nine volunteers, eight were from San Francisco, one was from Oakland, and she basically dictated the recipes to them and they transcribed it. And that ended up being uh, her cookbook, What Mrs. Fisher Knows About Old Southern Cooking, which was only the second cookbook by a black woman in America. Wow. So, you know, this was long before mid-20th century migration brought a lot of African-American people to the Bay Area. What do we know about San Francisco's black community at that time? And, and do we know anything of the racism that she faced here? Um, I think, I mean, I it's difficult to tell because ordinarily with this series, I don't start writing until I feel like I've made friends with the woman until I, you know, feel like mm -hmm. I know their essence, essentially. But with Abby, it was just based on, A, her book, and B, um, census records. So it's difficult to know exactly what she faced when she got here. But I will say that I always look at her story as an example of just what a warm welcome she got in the Bay. Mm. And, um, you know, p the, the way that everybody came together to help her get her book out, like, I think this was probably... Um, I mean, obviously there was going to be racism, but she certainly, she did okay. Yeah. We're talking with Ray Alexandra, staff writer for KQED Arts, about her series Rebel Girls on the unsung women who helped shape Bay Area history. We'd love to hear from you. Is there a woman in your community's history or your family history that you consider a rebel girl for the work they did or the impact that they had? We'd love you to tell us about them. You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions or your nominations for Rebel Girl to forum at kqed.org. 
Let's move on to another in your cast of amazing characters. Where do you want to go? Uh, Masako Katsura? Masako Katsura. Oh, I love her so much. Okay, so, because she was just super cool on top of everything else. She's like the coolest woman on earth. So, Masako grew up in Tokyo. And when she was 14, her mother encouraged her to go get more exercise by learning to play billiards, which (laughs) I don't know what that's about. But It's um, not exactly Peloton, but, you know, you do have to do some stretching. It's true. It's a something. I'm not sure how they landed on that. But anyway, Masako finds out very quickly that she is extraordinarily skilled at three cushion billiards. Like she she picks up tricks easily. She she plays ambidextrously. Um, And so then she starts working in the billiards halls and she's watching all of the people who are better than her and learning their tricks. So she becomes an expert. And um, so she won Japan's national women billiards tournament and then she came second in the men's competition twice um and then world war ii breaks out she's playing a lot of american gis she's doing a lot of um she's showing off her tricks in various shows um and she ended up meeting an air force sergeant named vernon greenleaf and they got married in 1950 1951 they ended up moving to sacramento where he was stationed and then she arrived in America to, you know, which was a place where women didn't didn't play billiards. She had a really hard time just going to the billiards halls to practice without her husband being there. Um, but her skills were recognized because American GIs had come back after the war and told professionals, you've got to see this woman from Japan. Like, she's amazing. Um, so a guy named Welka Cochran, who was also... This is her hype man. Yes. He was also a billiards champion. And so he became her manager. They traveled all over the country. She competed in tournaments. She was the first woman to compete for an international billiards title. Um, And everywhere she went, she was a media sensation because she was five foot tall. She weighed less than 100 pounds. She always wore a gown when she was playing. And she put up with an extraordinary amount of sexism, um, particularly in the press. And she did it with such grace. She just kind of glided on through the whole thing like well yeah i'm just gonna come in and slay and leave and bye right you know do we know exactly how the different gender dynamics of billiards got going we just assume this was just kind of american sexism playing out in yet another realm it's american sexism playing out in yet another realm um i i think you know in Tokyo, where she grew up, it was very common. It was a common game for for young girls and women to play. And she couldn't fathom when she got here. She's like, why is it only men in here? Like, this fundamentally doesn't make any sense. And she broke the she broke those doors open for women after her because she was such a sensation. More women did start playing billiards. Um, She broke the whole thing open. Yeah. Let's bring in our first caller. We have Janelle from Oakland. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much. Um, I wanted to share two local um, heroines that I uh, believe in. One is uh, an amazing woman of color. She's like over 100 years old right now. Her name is Betty, and she's a ranger at the Rosie the Oh, uh, Betty Reed Soskin. Yeah. Amazing. Yes, exactly. I mean, she's amazing. But the truth is I, I really wanted to talk about Donald Dana Cameron. Some people might actually see this as a um, sort of white savior concept, but during the time she was actually born – in um, 1869, she emigrated to San Francisco, and she ended up spending much of her adult life saving immigrant Chinese girls out of Chinatown sex, child trafficking um, brothels. 
So and I'm... she would be climbing up on ladders, pulling them out of windows, so much so that their pimps actually said, one night a, a white devil woman will come for you, but you mustn't go with her because she will eat you alive. I so love that... I love that you brought Donaldina up. I actually, I wrote about um, one of her assistants whose name was Tian Fu Wu. Uh, Donaldina had had rescued Tian from a gambling den in Chinatown when she was about eight years old and in a horrific abuse situation. And the two became these amazing lifelong friends. And when Donaldina, um, they worked alongside each other, but when Donaldina retired, Tian took over at the Presbyterian Mission House in Chinatown. And um, at the end of Tian's time there, Donaldina invited her to go live with her in Sacramento. And they lived side by side until they died. And they're buried side by side in Donaldina Cameron's family plot in L.A. It's one of my, oh my favorites. Gosh, wow. What yeah. a story. Hey, thank you so much for that, uh, Janelle. I also wanted to note, not to give anything away, but Betty Reed Soskin will definitely be a future guest on the show yes. sometime very soon. Amazing. Uh, we've been working to line it up. Um, let's uh, do this call out one more time. We're talking with Ray Alexandra, staff writer for KQED Arts, about her series Rebel Girls on the unsung women who helped shape Bay Area history. Is there a woman in your community's history or family history that you consider a rebel girl, kind of a heroine for the work that she did or the impact that she had. Tell us about them. You uh, Have you heard or read any stories from Ray's Rebel Girl series? And do you have a favorite that you want to shout out? You can give us a call 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your comments to forum at kqed.org. Org. Ray, I know we have some really fascinating people coming up after the break, including, I want to preview for our audience, we have a great story about a woman who really, really loved to gamble. Just give us her name before we go to this break. Eleanor Dumont. All right. So stay tuned for the story of Eleanor Dumont. You're really going to love this one. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more with Ray Alexandra after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Ray Alexandra, staff writer for KQED Arts about her series Rebel Girls on the unsung women who helped shape Bay Area history. Ray, I wanted to ask you, you know, what's the origin story for this series? And do you have a sense of the impact that the series has had over time? Okay, well, the origin was me finding out the massive discrepancy um, in regards to stuff named after men and stuff named after women. Uh, And in San Francisco, 87% of parks, streets, statues and buildings are named for men, which leaves the women with 13%. And um, I found this out sometime in late 2017. And became fairly insufferable about it, like just, you know, complaining to my friends and my family and random people in bars like, well, you know, we've lost all these women to history. And then I was like, oh, you know, I could actually probably do something (laughs) about that, given what I do for a living. Um, So that's how it started. And in terms of impact, you know, some stories do better than others, but uh, it always means a lot if a member of that person's family reaches out um, and a couple of months back I think it was November I wrote about an amazing woman uh, named Kalabagai who was one of the first Indian immigrants to California and when she got here she faced an abhorrent amount of racism with her husband and her family and she had a really really hard time of it um, But later in life, she kind of she helped other immigrants go through that process so they didn't have to suffer in the same way. And she formed these really wonderful communities of South Asian people up and down California's coast. Um, And after I wrote that story, her granddaughter reached out to me and said, where did you get this information? Like, Mm. I, I, you know, stuff that I don't know. And so I was able to share with her newspaper clippings that I'd found in the archives um, and pass those on and that when things like that happen it's like okay I have to do this series for the rest of my life because it's, <laughs> it's just it's too good it's so satisfying and yeah you know, giving giving primary documents to a family uh, when you've done historical research on them is one of the most satisfying things about yeah. doing history I think yeah let's um let's talk about Eleanor Dumont who we previewed before the break okay so Eleanor Dumont, um, a lot of people know her as Madame Moustache because later in her life she grew a moustache and um, somebody angrily called her that uh, and it's stuck, unfortunately. I try not to refer to her that way, but people may know her that way. Um, so Eleanor was a French woman who came to San Francisco in 1850. She was 21 uh, and she became a she was the first female card dealer at the Belly Belly Union Hotel, which was just off Portsmouth Square. Um, and she ended up losing her job there after a few years because she was accused of um, tampering with the cards and cheating. Um, but based on what I've researched about the rest of her life, it seems more likely that someone's ego got bruised losing to a woman. Mm-hmm. And so she lost her job. And so in 1854, she decided to open her own very classy gambling establishment in Nevada City, which was then a booming gold mining town. And uh, the gold miners loved it because she brought in fine wines and an orchestra and she was always dressed to the nines. And the gold miners would come in regularly and say, you know, we find it more satisfying to lose to Eleanor Dumont than we do winning elsewhere. (laughs) Um, So she was very beloved. Um, When things started slowing down in Nevada City, she had to close her casino because the gamblers, the 
gold miners. The money was gone. The money was gone. <laughs> so she spent the rest of her life following the gold. So she went all over the Wild West. She was um, legendary in her own time. I mean, I found newspaper articles where people were like, she came through on a train. There she goes. Like everyone was so excited about Eleanor. Um, you know, and she was friends with legend. She she taught Calamity Jane how to gamble because they were both in Deadwood. Um but she ultimately, her life ended quite sadly in Bodie. She'd moved to Bodie uh, following the gold, as usual. And um, she got into debt very badly one night. Uh, she was $8,000 in the hole and she ended up uh, taking her own life with, with morphine and red wine. But prior to that, it's, it's such a sad ending because prior to that, she had been this very fearless shoot em up kind of lady you know she was very refined and she was good at breaking up fights but when she needed to she would she wasn't afraid to to get feisty with a gun you know you said earlier that when you write these you really feel like you can't start you can't put words on the page until you really feel like you've grasped the essence of of the person so when you think about a life like this eleanor demont's life a, a wild and pretty tragic but also kind of amazing life like how do you think about it i mean do you think about it as beautiful do you think about it as as wild and free i just think she was extraordinary and the the thing that bothers me with eleanor dumont's story is i cannot believe no one has made a movie yes. about her like well, a prestige television series <laughs> i mean because the other thing is at, at a certain point in her life the one time that she tried to settle down um, she married a man who turned out to be a swindler and he stole her life savings and she hunted him down and she killed him. And the sheriff, everyone in town knew and the sheriff just looked the other way because he was like, I know what that man did. Like, And so he just told everyone, oh, we don't have enough evidence. Um, you know, there were occasions where she would become violent with cheating gamblers in her establishments. Like she was she, she's a really interesting character. And it's the, her whole life story is ripe for, yeah, a prestige. Have you written it up? Series. Are you pitching this as a uh, as a series to Netflix? Or? Oh God, somebody should. I mean, you yeah. could you could do it, Ray. Just saying. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Not Let, so good with the dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> Let's bring in Melissa from Napa. Welcome to the show, Melissa. Thank you. So. I would like to share about my grandmother, whose name is Kathleen Griffin, and she was a resident in Berkeley, and she owned a rock and roll club on San Pablo, which was called the New Orleans House. She also worked with Marilyn Persley to help uh, end redlining and uh, the uh, people not selling homes to interracial couples or to gay couples. She sold her home to a gay couple on Bancroft Way. And she also was uh, blacklisted by McCarthy and so went into the restaurant business because she couldn't find work elsewhere. And our family's been trying to find more information about that, but we haven't been able to do so. Um, and there's some wonderful things. She also helped to unionize the docks in Oakland oh and God. a potato chip factory. <laughs> so wow. She's a wonderful social justice advocate and as part of her uh, owning the rock and roll club, she would hire convicts who could not get paroled unless they had a job lined up. And she would co-sign for loans and all sorts of wonderful things. And I feel like she's had a wonderful impact on the community. And I'd love to learn more about the things she did. And her name's Kathleen Griffin? 
Correct. Okay, well, leave this with me because I'm already in love with her. (laughs) (laughs) Melissa, have you been able to find a lot of documentation about her life, or is this more you, you know this from family lore, you know this from letters, photographs? So I lived with her in an intergenerational home in Napa Valley. So after she she owned the properties in in Berkeley, and I also grew up with her. So I learned it from her, um, and and also from my mother, and and she, just from 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 being with her. But we we were never we never knew how she was reported to the McCarthy Commission. Uh, we didn't have any information about that. And so that's that's part of what we we didn't know how to go about finding um finding that information. I don't know that anyone can find that information. I think they're a little bit <laughs> secretive, weren't they? Um, but I mean, certainly, I'm I'm extremely interested in yeah in Cat, your grandmother. And... Um, my my hope today was that somebody would call in and give me a suggestion, and this is like I kind of just want to get up and run out and scream and <laughs> go to newspapers.com and start looking through the archives. I mean, um, and I know what. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just going to ask. You know, she was probably actually a communist. No, I mean, just given that that set of back, at least associated with the Communist Party in the '30s and '40s, there were a ton of you know social justice activists here in the paper. Exactly. I think it's very likely, and that she had some affiliation with the Communist Party. But even just the unionizing um, activities would be seen as being a communist, mm-hmm. also. Yeah. And, Particularly and with the longshoremen who were, yeah, persecuted a lot by the McCarthyists. It, yeah, exactly. It's so many things. She's five different. She's five different stories. Oh my gosh! All at the same time. Amazing. Melissa, you're going to have to leave your email address with the producers so, so that we can oh, get I'd in touch. To. I'd love to. Yeah, that would be uh, that would be fantastic. Yes, yeah. thank you so much for calling in. I'm so happy yeah. right now. Thank you, Melissa. Um, let's go to one of your other stories. Maybe we could talk about Barbara May Cameron a little bit. Oh, Barbara Cameron. There's probably people listening who remember Barbara Cameron because it wasn't so long ago. She was very active in San Francisco in the 70s and 80s. Um, she was an indigenous woman who was born on the Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota and uh, after high school, she got um, a qualification in photography and she came to San Francisco and she immediately co-founded a group called Gay American Indians with a man named Randy Burns. And the goal was um, to bring indigenous LGBTQ folks together uh, to connect, but it was also a way for them to organize, to try and carve out a space for themselves in the the wider LGBTQ community, which was white dominated. And they all felt that very deeply. Um, So Barbara was, she became enormously popular because she was very outspoken and she was very formidable. And the way that she wrote was very blunt. She wrote some really searing essays about the whiteness in the gay community and who got prioritized and who got to speak. Um, but she they was feel also, extremely contemporary, don't you think? Yeah. Um, but she she was also, in addition to being very outspoken, she was very calm and very respectful, which made her a really outstanding leader. So she was involved in the in the 80s. She was involved in almost every facet of LGBTQ life in San Francisco. I mean, she she helped organize the Dyke March before it was the Dyke March. Um, Diane Feinstein appointed her to a bunch of different committees and commissions to um, give advice. Like she she was really just an amazing figure in the LGBT community. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. We're talking with Ray Alexandra, staff writer for KQD Arts, about her series Rebel Girls on the unsung women who've helped shape Bay Area history. We have some uh, other nominations of Rebel Girls from listeners. One tweets, I want to shout out contemporary Rebel Girls, Amy Allison, founder of She the People, and BART board member Latifa Simon. And Sarah writes in, a local civil rights activist who worked closely with the Black Panthers, Yuri Kochiyama. Should we, you want to follow up on either of those, Ray, or should I go to our next call? I'm just making mental notes. Okay, fair enough. Great. Let's bring in uh, uh, Diana from Oakland. Hi. Hi, Diana. Hello. Thank you for having me. Um, I want to talk about my friend, Judy Gumbo Albert. She uh, came from Canada to attend UC Berkeley. And um, she's often affiliated or associated with the Berkeley Barb, which was a radical newspaper in the 60s, a rather popular one. And um, her feminist views that she wrote in the face of, you know, a lot of um, resistance on the part of radical men. And she's associated with uh, her husband, Stu Albert. Uh, Max Shear, the publisher of the bar, Jerry Rubin, all the yippie people. She was, in fact, she's about to uh, launch her book. She wrote a memoir called Yippie Girl. And so she's a good friend. She's still around. She's still talking to people and uh, traveling and talking about all her different activities. Peace, you know, during the 60s against the war, she was just the vigilant. Protester and women's rights advocate. She's wonderful. Diana, can I follow up with one question? How has she changed your life or the way you see the world? Oh, well, I got to know her because I did my master's thesis on the gender revolution and um, I interviewed people that had been affiliated with the Berkeley Barb and then I read the first five years of it a couple times. And she evolved, all of them did, actually, all of the people that I got to know uh, have become friends of mine, and they're just a wonderful group, and they're still working away, Garth Smith and John Jacobson, and there's just a, a, you know, wonderful group of people around that, and I suppose we'll be celebrating the 55th or the 60th anniversary of the first Berkeley Barb in 2025. So Amazing. We did the yeah. 50th anniversary, and it was a huge success. And, That's great. Um, 
you know, Eugene Schoenfeld is still around, Dr. Hip. That's how he got started at the Berkeley That's Bar. so cool. It's yeah. Just People. Well, Diana, thank you so much for for that and beautiful Berkeley history in, in so many different ways. Ray, I wanted to ask you if there was, you know, is there a story that's become near and dear to your heart, really kind of epitomizes the spirit of the series in your mind? Okay, so uh, I have to talk about Delilah L. Beasley, who was um, a journalist here. She came to journalism late, but she became the first black woman to have a column in a major white newspaper. She had a column in the Oakland Tribune that ran from 1923 until her death in 1934. But she dedicated this column to shining a light on black excellence. Um, And in doing so, she also highlighted the barriers that people of color and women were facing um and you know she had to walk a really really thin tightrope between the black community and the white community um and she did so with grace and she did so brilliantly and she was the second woman i wrote about in the rebel girl series um but the the most amazing thing about Delilah is that she comes up in my research again and again and again. And sometimes I'll look up a newspaper article about someone completely different and it will have been written by her. And so this has happened so many times at this point. I kind of feel like she's the, she's the guardian angel watching over rebel girls from Bay Area history because she comes up so much. And I feel like she forged a path and I'm just kind of stumbling along behind her trying to find her footsteps Uh because a lot of the women that I've written about, she this these were the same women that she was trying to write about. So it's a question of like, I have to I have to follow Delilah's cues. And um, I feel very attached and indebted to her at this point. Um, so, so much so that during the pandemic, when I was struggling to get this written, I went to visit her grave and paid my respects. Just like, Delilah, help me. Oh, wow. I mean, it's pretty amazing. I mean, if you do any research into African-American history in California... Delilah L. Beasley shows up almost immediately. Yeah, yeah. She was she was everywhere, and she was in about a billion civic clubs as well, including the NAACP. She she was just she was really extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. I remember running into her because there's one of Oakland's Olympians won a medal during sort of Jesse Owens Olympics, where you know a bunch of Black Americans mm. went to Berlin and won a bunch of gold medals in front of Hitler. Very satisfying moment in history. Yeah. And Archie Williams lived a few lived a few blocks from me uh, with a woman named uh, Fanny Wall, who was his grandmother. And Delilah Beasley, like Fanny Wall, was a club woman. You know, she had, she was a part of all these clubs. Yeah. She was a race woman, really cared about black people and their, their fortunes. And you just see the two of them in Oakland uh, changing things, going yeah. at what was then an incredibly conservative white establishment in whatever ways they could. Yeah. And I mean, she, she wrote for black newspapers, too. Um, she, like I said, she was she was trying to swing between both worlds just to kind of clear the gap. Um, tell us really quickly, what, who are you working on next? So this month, I, to, in honor of Earth Day, I'm going to be writing about the founders of Save the Bay. It's the first time I've written about more than one woman in a month. But um, I'm going to be writing about Sylvia McLaughlin, Kate Kerr, and Esther Gullick. Oh, man. Have a good time with that. There's some great oral histories with, yes. with them. I'm sure. excited. That's great. We've been talking with Ray Alexandra, staff writer for KQED Arts, about her series Rebel Girls on the unsung women who helped shape Bay Area history. Thanks again for joining us, Ray. Thanks so much. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for some music after the break.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.